You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Peggy Higgins, a former assistant professor of healthcare sciences in the School of Health Professions at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and Director of Education for Alzheimer's Disease Center in the Department of Neurology at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. As the Education Director at the Alzheimer's Disease Center, Peggy developed national programs for Alzheimer's awareness and conducted workshops with community leaders throughout the country. Peggy's first career was in interior design and focused on showroom design for national furniture manufacturers and the interiors for nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Welcome, Peggy. Hi, welcome. It's great to have you here. You have a remarkably unique and pertinent background for those of us who are members of OLLI. You have established an incredibly fascinating blend of careers and interests through your knowledge and expertise of the psychology of color. Can you explain to us how your experience in interior design has facilitated your work in the awareness and treatment of Alzheimer's disease? Boy. (laughs) In 20 words or less, no, you have much longer than that. My interest in color is long-standing. When I was 12, my mom let me paint my own bedroom any color, and at that time, I thought lavender would be really cool. And that was because I had somehow or another some insight feeling that this is the career path I wanted to be on. I wanted to do an interior designer. I didn't even know what that was when I was 12, but that was sort of a instinct that I had early on. As I really traveled to different cities, and my husband and I went from one side of the country to the other, I seemed to find different jobs in each one, whether it was in Wisconsin or Connecticut or Texas. As far as what the challenges are and what I've learned, it's pretty amazing because design is cultural. And I'm finding that here in Texas, We have some unique wants, desires that are very different than probably somebody in Connecticut where most people had antiques and spinning wheels in their living room. (laughs) (laughs) Very different. And I was working for a furniture manufacturer here in the Metroplex, and the company was starting to downsize. And I, at the time, was involved in working with nursing homes and assisted living and doing furnishings that they wanted to have for their facilities. I asked them, who is this person who is going to be staying in the room? What were their likes, their dislikes? What were they frail or not? To help them choose furniture and design and color in the rooms. And decided that these owners knew a lot less than I did. And it was time for me to find out something. You were truly looking at the individuals, the populations That's that would live there and how the interiors would exactly. affect them. Right. Whereas the owners wanted it pretty. And they really went, well, of course they wanted pretty, but they didn't think into that. So I 
and did some research, came up to UNT and found there was the Department of Gerontology, the study of aging. And I talked to the director and I said, I need to take a course on housing, aging, wants, needs in nursing homes and assisted living or some other type of residence. And so I took a class. I took another class, took another class. You were hooked. I, I, I mean, as I would say, this education is really kind of contagious here. <laughs> I got it. So I stayed and I did get degrees in gerontology and medical sociology. And I taught for a while at, at UNT. Um, still doing some design things on the side, doing some showroom design, as well as going to school. My first really real job was at UT Southwestern Medical Center, primarily in their gerontology department. And I was teaching the aging and different dimensions of aging and long-term care and caregiver to PT, PA, um, all of these other disciplines in the health profession school. I was that segment doing that. There was an opening that opened in the Department of Neurology that was part-time for working with the Alzheimer's Disease Center there. And I started working with them and became the director for the education part. We were federal-funded grant. There are 32 of these Alzheimer's Disease Centers in the United States, and each one of them have an education director like myself. That's very impressive. I loved it there. I was there for like 17 years until I retired. And that was a very hard job to, to retire from, mainly because I kept seeing progress all the time. So much research is going into it and information. Yes. Right. And then from the education part of it, it was our job to get out whether it was newsletters or catalogs or information, just something that so people could really help themselves and help, whether it's a caregiver, help do all these different things in, as far as caregiving and dementia. I, I have to say that more than 15 years ago, I had a grant to do an exercise study, and I had only 14 or 15 enrolled in the study, and it was with PT graduate students. And they designed exercise for these people with dementia. It was a fascinating study. It was not something that we were looking at at the time. We were doing just try to see if it helped them in their mobility around the house, uh, whether it cognitively helped them. And we did have positive results. But it wasn't a, a research study that we could publish because they didn't have a control group. But it was something that we could see that there was a benefit. That The only thing that I didn't look out for was because of the disease and the different personalities, somebody became um, hyper-involved and did exercises three times a day. Oh. <laughs> well, that person was healthy, <laughs> needless to say. So your education in aging and the effects that it has neurologically and on cognition really grew. Your awareness of that grew, and then you had this background in color. Can you explain to us how the two came together and also this kind of a two-parter? Can you talk about the psychology of color? I know that's a huge area. Psychology of color, or sometimes called color psychology, either way, is a new discipline, really. It's part of a whole new genre of psychology that's sort of called environmental psychology. Interesting. Yeah. In the 50s, there was some research done on the effects of color on on somebody's um, behavior or their moods and other things. But there was no control. It was published, but it wasn't really looked at as being successful in some of these early researchers. I don't know if they tried to get more things published or it just never happened, but all of a sudden you had nothing after 1958, and it wasn't until the year um, 1998 before there was you saw something coming along again. Part of this has to do with there's a journal that came out in right about 2000 
called Frontiers in Psychology, and this was just the niche that they needed. The study of, of what the psychology of color is, is how colors affect the human behavior and their mood and their physiological um, processes. The colors are thought to influence our buying choices and our feelings and even our memories. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, any of these ideas are today, I think, are heavily implemented in, in the design and merchandising area, particularly corporate. If you're going to decide what does your corporate logo look like, what color is it, how is it going to influence somebody to come and buy your product? Mm -hmm. And that's where it's really blossomed. So as far as colors today have even some therapeutic benefits, and so I'm not I'm not really up there yet. I'm yeah. still studying this. But are they analyzing the effects perhaps that color may even have on cognition? Yes and no. There's been, I've looked and looked for research that has been published on color and cognition, and it's slim. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I could find was there was a particular group in, in France found that there was a certain area in the spectrum of turquoise that those that had an Alzheimer's type of dementia could not identify that color. Oh, is that right? Right. But I haven't seen it oh, interesting. Well, I'm just thinking as a lay person with mm -hmm. no scientific background in this area at all, but knowing how learning science is now identifying the way that moods affect Very your true. ability to learn and to remember things, I can imagine how the color schemes that you were looking at in yeah. assisted living homes and in retirement homes must have some sort of effect, one would assume. Right, right. and I have to tell you that the biggest hoax that color had played was that mauve could cure Alzheimer's disease. Oh, I had not heard that. Oh, yeah. It went through the industry. All right. People painted their walls everywhere, this mauve beigey, grayish, light tone, because someone did a study somewhere that said, oh well, Alzheimer's, we found the answer. There's no agitation in these rooms. It's peaceful, it's quiet, and yet, however, I think after about five to six years of people painting everything <laughs> that same color, realized And the Alzheimer's rate staying the same? Staying the same, same <laughs> or getting greater. Yeah. One of the things I think that while talking about research that is very important is about the perceptions and people's perceptions of color and what the color means. It's just really, I can divide it into gender and age and culture. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Because, um, you know, in a way, age and culture can go together because this is what you grew up with and this is what the older people did or what people were doing. So when you try to do research, and it's difficult, even though this is now an accepted discipline, it still is scientific. You definitely have to be, have a, an experimental trial that you can replicate. If you can't replicate it, it's not worth it. If you don't have people of the same similar age and how they're going to react to being in a room with green or looking at it on a screen, it may be vastly different. So you have to match up who it is you're testing and your variables. And I would say some of the early color likes and dislikes were tested in the classroom. Psychology 101, what is your favorite color? <laughs> what color don't you like? How do you feel when you're around pink? Uh, these type of questions, and then they gathered numbers and numbers and numbers, and, 
and come up with something. It would be interesting to learn more about the factors that affect a person saying, this is my favorite color. Red, blue, green, orange, whatever it may be, whatever factors went into them deciding that was their favorite color. Right. There's two studies that have been done quite well and, and repeated, and one of them was looking at the color red. The color red, well, both of these major studies are red. Red is probably the most studied because if it's a true red, it's quite easy not to say, okay, I did a light red over here, or a purple red over here, or whatever, but a, a true red, they could test. One of them was with students in England and China, and they were looking at what color seemed to have status. Red turned out to be the same in both England and China. Yeah, it was very interesting. And so it is very different interesting. schools and different universities. And, okay, but I don't know whether this was history, coming through because red is used. Chinese brides wear a red dress. Now that is interesting. That is interesting. I remember years ago when the book Dress for Success was oh, a big right. seller, they said red was a power color. That's true, and it is a power color. And so the other studies that I'm going to tell you about, you'll see, probably one of the ones that had the most success is looking at the data from the Olympics from the 50s up until the present time. And they looked at the team, all these different sports, some contact, like wrestling and other things, and others like soccer are not contact sports. Some of the things in the Olympics, they don't know their color that they're going to wear. Let's say wrestlers, they don't know if their trunks are going to be red or white or blue or whatever, usually red or white, until they get there. And they, so it's not something that they plan, you plan. So with the color red, there's two things going on. People think that it's the dominant color. So you seem to have a better perception of self wearing red. Is that right? Yes. And so because that, they can test. They can find that people are wearing it. How do you feel about this? Going for a job interview, put on that red tie, put on that red dress, do whatever. I feel confident. I can do it. Go, And that carries over even into sports. So they were able to look at all the teams that were wearing red and how did they do? Well, every one, they really were the superior one. They won many, many different type of contests wearing red. All of them seem to have be a statistical significance. I'm not you know, sure what number or what percentage, but they were significant. But we're looking today even at football teams. When you're at home, you can wear your own colors, right? So those that have red and they're wearing it at home seem to be as a whole have more success and more dominance. But is it because the other people are fearful? Because red is the color that emits this fight or flight. At the same time, it's Cupid. Think about that. Valentine hearts. Valentine's hearts. Yeah. Right, they're red. On the sports field or competition, even, get this, if the guy that's the goalie in your hockey game has on red, more than likely he's not going to have as many shots come into him to defend because there's something that people are standing off a bit. It would be interesting to know how many people, after listening to your interview, go out and buy red. Exactly. <laughs> Self-perception as well as the other side. The effect that it has. That's incredibly interesting. You taught a class on how color psychology can enrich a person's life. Part of the course description really intrigued me. It said, everyone has one or two colors that give insight to their soul. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess those are my words pretty bold, huh? <laughs> anyway, I love it. Okay. It intrigued me very Truthfully, much. Truthfully, 
when you talk to people about color and color that they like to be around, like if someone today that was talking about they love yellow, if yellow is the color that they have a passion for, and they said that it's been all of their life, they have loved yellow. That's how most people are in that color. Do you think somebody loves yellow as a librarian? I don't because they have to be a little quiet. It's a bright, bold color. It is a bold color. So the personalities that goes along with it is sort of friendly, happy, chipper, outgoing, gregarious. People like to be around them. It's a part of self. I have found more true blue people than any other color. And it is the world's most popular color. Is it? It is. And now some have different colors of blue that they like. A light blue, a medium blue, a navy blue you know, for whatever the reason, but they've always loved it, and they defend that color all the way. It's part of their inner being. Now, why would you think that is the most popular or frequent favorite color? I'm thinking it's a color that's rare in nature. We have the sky, and we have the ocean. If you're in the desert or anyplace else, there's no blue. I mean, there's probably not any water that has a blue reflection. Very few flowers are blue. If you try to add blue to your garden and go to find something, you may find some purples. But blue, not so much. There's only a few. So in a way, because it's rare. And then another thing is, if you've got blue eyes, and you're a young boy or girl, and you put on a shirt or a blouse, and then your eyes reflect in your shirt, and you're going to get compliments about that blue. That's so true. I mean, oh, look at the blue. It matches her eyes perfectly. Yes. And so little kids start taking that in, like, oh, I have blue, my eyes are blue, this is a great color. And getting positive responses. Uh, yes. Oh, and, and yet blue is another one like red, that there's so many explanations for what the color, yeah, as far as having the blues, a blue day as being sort of a downer, almost too cool, you're too calm. I'm feeling blue. Feeling blue. And my lectures, when I do these things, I usually play snippets of different songs and things, and it's a lot of country and western songs have the blues in it, and then some jazz songs that are blues, and then Rhapsody in Blue, just even starting, and that isn't blue. I mean, it's maybe somber, but it's not, it's not sad. Right. It is so interesting the way color plays a role in our language. I hadn't really given it a lot of thought until I read your course descriptions. And once I started thinking about it, I started realizing there are so many expressions, and we all know what they mean. I'm tickled pink. That's true. Oh, blue bloods. Yes, in Europe, I mean, they know who that is. That's the royalty. Yeah. They're blue bloods. Green with envy. Yeah, green with envy is right. I caught him red-handed. Oh, that's a good one. Do you know where that one came from? No. That's a good little story. Back in the Middle Ages, when someone that were serfs was taking the king's deer and kept them open or cut off the antlers, he had blood on his hands and oh. was caught, caught in the moment. Kind of interesting. Story. It's very interesting. <laughs> So how can people use their knowledge of color and the way that different colors affect us in the way that they live? Uh, How can they use it? Well, I would say when you have a choice to make, think about this choice that you're making in the color. If you walked into, let's say, a, a woman's shop and clothing, and you started going through the racks, and you knew that blue is your favorite color, you're going to pull out a blue blouse 
you can hold it up and look in the mirror and see what it looks like. I watch people in the store. It's kind of fun because I've seen this happen. You know what their favorite color is as they're going through the rack. They pick out something and they get a smile from ear to ear. <laughs> and nobody's around them. It's a happy feeling. Same can be true for, let's just say, your master bedroom and bath area. What color makes you feel good? That doesn't mean you need to paint all the walls a color, but it could be an accent. You could have a splash of it, right? Right, right. If it makes you feel good, it makes it you. There. And to see the smile on people's faces when they come through and see, even in a furniture store, they see a sofa or a toss pillows or a rug that has all that special colors. They're cheery, they're bright, they smile. That's even before they look at the price tags. <laughs> now it seems to me that any little thing that we can do to add some joy in our environment or create peace for us or give us a feeling of well-being is worth including into our environment. I see a real value of it. Your classes have focused on the perception of colors and the use of them, say, in homes and, and in clothes. Do you have a vision for the direction of your future classes? Yes, actually. I've been collecting articles and, as a matter of fact, two different books on the history of color and where it comes from. Think about this. The Middle Ages, there was very little color that was used for dyeing clothes. So they used linens and some cotton and wools. And most of it was the color that they sheared it right off the sheep and that's what they were wearing. <laughs> They didn't come, except for the church had their colors and the royalty of the different countries, but they didn't enjoy it and have that. But as people discovered what is the perfect dye, they tried a lot of plants, but some of the plant bases were not stable colors. They would wash out very easily. So the goal is to find a color such as blue, purple, red, that's going to be stable and that you can dye silk, you can dye wool, cotton, linen, all the same color and have it come out. The interesting things are where do they get this dye from if it's not plants? Well, there's little tiny insects, for example, the cochineal, the little tiny bug that's on the prickly pear cactus in Mexico started a big uproar with the Spanish that wanted it to take it home to their rulers because they found that it was perfect dye. Now, this is around 1500s. Interesting. So it affected history. It affected it their affected colonization. And it did. The culture of and, Mexico. I mean, think about this. 350,000 of these, they have a one-pound bag oh my of dried... Word. It sounds so, like an environmental disaster, but... Right, right, but it's just... Tiny. They got yeah. a lot of red. They get a lot of red. The other is that that's very strong. They had some other red that were from little ocean animals, little clams, kermes that they call around the Mediterranean, and they call them like crimson would be the color and a word that would be picked up. That was a true color red, and it dyed very well. It was a long process to do the dye. So when they found this little Mexican, it was 40 times stronger. So that means you didn't need as many drops in oh, that bucket of water. Right, so, right. So anyway, so, there's, so I've been reading about these, the conquerors from Spain that came and had to get this back, and they got boats and there was piracy and trying to knock somebody off because it was more valuable than gold. Wow, it like sounds it, like an incredibly yeah. interesting class. And, yeah, and so then the next one would be, and I'm studying another one on blue, and that's a Hebrew blue, and 
uh, just give you a hint that in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament in Numbers, God gave Moses command of how to put blue thread in the corners of the white prayer shawls with the idea that by putting that through their fingers that they can think of the heavenly sky up above. That's part of their devotion is having that. So don't you know they had to find that blue? So this is a story of how it was found and then lost and found again. That sounds yeah, so, so incredibly a, interesting. So it's a different way of looking at colors, but it's sort of a history. Peggy, I also have to really thank you very much for your time and service you devoted to Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Uh, given your knowledge of OLLI as an OLLI faculty member, a member of the advisory council, a member of the curriculum and marketing committees, and an OLLI ambassador. Do you see the participation in OLLI, its classes and trips and special interest groups, as helpful in our goal to age in a healthful way, particularly on a neurological or psychological basis with all your experiences with the aging brain? Yeah, sure. When you look at the aging brain, to try to enrich the brain, now that we know that your brain can grow if you have the proper food, proper exercise, heart healthy is brain healthy, but in addition to all that is socialization. And there's been a lot of research most recently about the importance of socialization and how long you live, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or not. So Ollie is the perfect opportunity to socialize. I can just say I have met some of the most interesting, fascinating, cool people. Yes, I and have. Ollie. Yes. I mean, really, they're just as diverse as can be. I think everyone that attends the classes or participates in the committees is that each individual has a curiosity about them and wanting to know more, wanting to learn more wanting to even share more and see how others react to what they're sharing. But it's that curiosity that keeps them social. And I mean, and it's enriching for the brain. It's very body. stimulating. Yeah. Stimulating. I feel a different energy level when I'm around people very like true. that. I know. So I got to quit joining these committees. So. Oh, <laughs> thank you, though. Thank yeah. you so much. We're so fortunate to have you as we are to have you for this podcast. I thank you for sharing your expertise, your knowledge. I cannot wait for your future classes to be announced because they sound very exciting in very many levels. History, psychology. Color. Color. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Peggy. Uh, you're welcome. My this has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Peggy Higgins. Thanks so much for listening.